Amen. Amen. We are in the final chapter of the book of Romans, uh, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. We've been in it for the better part of a year, and we're on the final chapter, not the final sermon. We'll take two weeks, Lord willing, to cover this final chapter. But this last section, um, really, that covers Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship. It's really Paul's final greetings. So in ancient letters, you really save the greetings to the end of the letter. And so at the end, he's greeting a whole bunch of people. This is the largest um, section of greetings in any of the New Testament letters. And he greets a whole bunch of names, uh, 26 names, actually. Um, And you might read this and think, what does this have to do with us today? In fact, if you've ever read the book of Romans before, you may have skipped this last section and said, I don't think this has any real genuine application for us today. But hopefully I can prove you wrong this morning. Actually, this is one of my favorite sections of the entire letter of Romans, is this final section with the 20-something names, okay? Um, And uh, now I'm not the first one that has seen some amazing application in this section. Uh, John Chrysostom, the early church father, said, it is possible even from bare names to find a great treasure in this section. Um, the, the theologian Emil Brunner said this was one of the most instructive chapters of the New Testament. So why? Because it, it's a, this is a real-life letter written by an apostle, Paul, to an actual church, and it gives us an insight in the type, into the type of fellowship that they had together. Christian fellowship is an essential of the Christian life. We're in Romans 16. We're going to cover the first 16 chapters here this morning. You can open your Bibles or it will be up on the screen in which we read this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Impliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those, who, who, those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Esyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ 
greet you. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and study, proclamation, and application of his word this morning. All right, here's where we're going, verses 1 through 7 in general. Really, this kind of overlaps a lot this morning, but Christian fellowship is diverse. It's diverse. Christian fellowship is on mission, 8 to 15, his description of all of these individuals. And then Christian fellowship is loving, looking particularly at that final verse. First thing to note is that Christian fellowship is diverse. He starts off by mentioning a woman that we don't know anything about other than what we see right here in Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and she is described as a servant of the church in Sancreia. So she is not a member of the church in Rome. She is part of the church in Sancreia. And as he describes here, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her, uh, for she has been a patron of me and of many probably meaning that she was a financial supporter of missions. She financially supported Paul himself and many other missionaries. Some scholars, many scholars, believe Phoebe was probably the carrier of the letter. So she's the one who's actually taking this letter to the Romans with her to Rome and then hands it over to the church. That's the first person he mentions, and he mentions a whole bunch of women in this section. Actually, the first two people he mentions are both women. The next one is Prisca, who is the husband, uh, who's the wife of Aquila. Uh, Prisca is short for Priscilla. So if you've seen in scripture Priscilla and Aquila, um, that's her. And typically in ancient letters, um, in ancient any type of writing, when you mention a couple, the name that you mention first is the more prominent of the two. So Priscilla, interestingly enough, was the more well-known of this missionary couple here. Um, So what we see in this list right here are all different types of diverse names. And that may or may not be immediately uh, sort of obvious to you as you read this, but looking more carefully here, again, you have quite a divide. Nine of the names are women. Um, You have Jews, clearly. So Prisca and Aquila are fellow Jews with Paul. Mary very Jewish name. Um, Andronicus and Junia are described as his kinsmen, meaning that they are fellow Jews. Herodian is described as a kinsman. So you have Jews and you have Gentiles in this list. Uh, You have very clearly Greek names and clearly Roman names. Um, You can't get much more Greek than Olympus, right? That's about as Greek as you get. And Hermes, you have Greek names, you have Roman names, Aristobulus, and so forth. One thing that, again, is not immediately sort of evident from us, for us here today is you have slave names. Impliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, and Apelles are clearly slave names for that time period. Now, they may have been those who have gained their free, freedom, uh, but they would still have the stigmatism of their names, and they would never reach sort of above a certain social class in Rome, that is, not in the church, but in Rome with those names. At the same time, you have extremely prominent, most likely very wealthy folks, not only Phoebe, who's a patron, but the household of Aristobulus. This Aristobulus is almost certainly the grandson of Herod the Great, and a friend, Aristobulus, a friend of the emperor of Rome, Claudius. Narcissus here was also extremely, an extremely influential person in Rome and a friend of the Emperor Claudius. By the way, this is not Narcissus as in Greek mythology, the narcissistic, you know, that comes from a 
somebody who uh, was, fell in love with his own image in Greek mythology. You've heard that. So when you talked about someone being a narcissist today, it's someone who is absolutely self-absorbed and self-consumed. Totally different person, okay? This narcissist was a different person. Not that Aristobulus and Narcissus themselves have become Christians or part of the church in Rome, but two members of their household in the same church, in the same group, he mentions men and women. Slaves and men and men and women of prominence. Jews, Greeks, and Romans. What cuts across those type of boundaries? What, what message could bring this diverse group of people all together under one letter here? Only the gospel. Only a message that has to do with us as human beings and not superficial outward differences. A message about who we are and our standing in this universe as creatures made in the image of God. A message that tells us what's wrong with us. We are sinners. The problem is not outside of us, right? The world always wants to say the problem is something outside of us. Um, The problem is within us. If you took humans out of the world, all of our wars and famines and so forth would go away, right? We're actually, the problem comes from within. G.K. Chesterton, the famous um, Catholic theologian of, uh, well, he's more of a journalist in England, was asked to answer an essay, what is wrong with the world? He sent in a card that said only this, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. In other words, the problem with the world is something within us. There's a sin problem that, again, cuts across men and women, people of all social stance, uh, standings and of all ethnicities, and a gospel message that provides grace and forgiveness and mercy to anyone and everyone who turns in faith to the Lord Jesus. Friends, that is a message that saves, that is a message that applies to every human being. I want to look a little bit more here at uh, Phoebe, just to be clear about a few things, uh, because she's often pointed out as a church leader. Is she a church leader? Uh, She is commended as a sister and a servant of the church, and the word there for servant is diakonos. Sound familiar? Uh, We have our diaconate, it's the word for deacon. Now, the word diakonos can mean an official position in a church, an office in a church, the office of deacon, or it could just be used in the general sense of a servant in the church. And so there's big debates about this. Is Phoebe a female deacon? And the reason why that's a big deal is if she is, then she is unquestionably the, a clear reference to a female deacon. In some traditions, in many tradition, Christian traditions, they don't allow female deacons. We do here at First Baptist Church. Um, And the debate goes on and on, and I think what you have here is certainly if the office of deacon has not been clearly formulated by this point in time, which may be the case, clearly though, uh, Paul is saying she is some type of leader um, in the church in Sincrea, unquestionably. She's mentioned here. He doesn't just say, you know, she's just a person bringing the letter. She is a servant of of the church at an entirely different church, and he mentions that church by name. Um, He mentions Sincrea, and that she would be a recognizable part of that church, and again, she is a patron, a supporter of missions. 
Um, I, I think this is probably a good piece of evidence that women deacons are absolutely allowed in Scripture. You add that to the fact that there is no theological reason why women deacons would not be allowed. They are not responsible for those who are, are very um, complementarian. They're not responsible for the teaching and preaching of the word um, or spiritual oversight. A deacon is a servant who serves in some capacity, and we see that happening all over the scriptures. Again, Paul makes a point to mention Priscilla next and to really raise up with great prominence many of the women of the church. Just understand, this is a great sort of piece of evidence, a great aspect to, to bring out when it comes to the diversity of the Christian faith. As you're sharing the faith with someone, um, mention this. This is a big deal today, right? What brings people together? The gospel brings people together. What evidence do we have of that? 2,000 years of church history and the entire globe be affected by this, right? Right here in Romans. This turned Rome, by the way, upside down. It was only uh, a, a short time before Rome really started to expand. The Christian faith in Rome really started to expand. And of course, as we know, eventually becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire. Uh, the whole empire is affected by the gospel. But even from the very beginning, the gospel has cut across these social boundaries. Actually, one of the writers of scripture is not Jewish. Luke is a Gentile physician. Uh, one of the, the first Gentile convert comes very early in the book of Acts. It's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's actually someone who serves uh, under Candace. Candace was kind of an official title for the queen or the head uh, of uh, Ethiopia. You have um, right from the earliest beginning. The first clear Gentile uh, convert outside of him, because he may have been a proselyte, um, is uh, an, an Italian officer um, named, named Cornelius. Uh, quickly spreading from there. Goes into the Coptic church in Egypt, which dates back to the 50s AD and spreads throughout Africa. You know, it's interesting when people think of Christianity as some white colonial type of religion. Um, when you think of the earliest great church fathers like Augustine and Athanasius, um, maybe if you know anything about church history, maybe in your mind, when you think of these men, you think of some European-looking person sitting in a study somewhere there in uh, London or something like that. Uh, both Augustine and Athanasius were Africans. Uh, the gospel spreads throughout Africa, in throughout Asia, and here we're mentioned that it's mentioned that Epinetus is the first convert to Asia, and quickly throughout all of the known world. Today, Christianity is spread almost equally across the globe, um, in every continent. You know what continent is actually lagging behind? Uh, not North America. North America is very well reached with the gospel. So is Europe. So is uh, Africa and South America. Australia, of course. Asia. Asia is the country with the lowest percentage of Christians, primarily because of that 1040 window that Pastor Mike was talking about earlier, an unreached part of the world. And yet, there are as many as 100 million Christians in China alone. The gospel transcends these boundaries of race, ethnicity, gender, and social status. It's a message that is meant for us as human beings. And friends, that should be represented in our local church, that we are a diverse group of people. What would bring this group of people together? with all of our different personalities and our different ages and different likes and dislikes in life, only the gospel. 
only the message that saves. But more than that, he doesn't just mention this list of names. He says something about almost every single person on this list. And what we notice is that they are on mission. Christian fellowship is diverse, but Christian fellowship is on mission. Uh, Just looking at this list, he mentions so many different things about each of the people. Um, Some of them have to do with their standing before God, uh, the the gospel and how it's affected them individually. Looking at the list, you have Epinetus. He is described as beloved. Uh, We don't use the word beloved too often today. Uh, Beloved means to be loved, right? If you're the one doing the loving, you're the lover. If you are the one receiving the love, you are the beloved. Who is the one who gives love to Epinetus? Not just Paul and the other Christians, but beloved by God, beloved in the Lord. He's converted, changed from one thing to another. Impliatus is described as beloved in the Lord. Stachys is beloved. Apelles, approved in Christ. In good standing before God because of what Christ has done. Persis is beloved. Rufus is described as chosen in the Lord. Those in Christ, you are beloved, you are approved, you are chosen in the Lord. And he describes the Christians as saints, set apart, holy in the sight of God. By the way, the word saint in the New Testament is a reference to any Christian, any and all Christians. Um, Much later in church history, the word saint was used to describe sort of an elite spiritual group of people. Um, That is not the case in the New Testament, without question. The word saint refers to all Christians, or as the church the churches, the gathered people of God. The ecclesia, that word ecclesia was used to describe Israel in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. We're those who have a beloved, approved, chosen standard before God. But he emphasizes very strongly their work, what they do to be on mission. Um, Notice what he says about all of them. Phoebe, of course, as we mentioned, is described as a servant and a patron. Prisca and Aquila as fellow workers um, who risked their necks. By the way, that's literally what it says. That terminology of risking your neck comes from this Greek idiom. They risk their necks for the gospel's sake. Mary is described as working hard. She worked hard uh, for the kingdom. Andronicus and Junia as fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. By the way, it doesn't say that they are apostles. Some have read too much into this and said that Junia is one of the apostles and she's an example of a female apostle. Sorry, that's not actually what it says. It's simply that the apostles recognize both of them, Andronicus and Junia, probably a married couple, as outstanding missionaries. Urbanus as a fellow worker. Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably sisters, workers in the Lord. And Persis as one who worked hard. They're on mission. They're working for the kingdom. They're doing the work that the Lord has entrusted to them. Also notice the family relationships. Many of these are individual names who are serving the Lord. But some of the, many of these are also describing their familial relationships. Uh, Prisca and Aquila are a married couple. They're a ministry couple working together. Andronicus and Junia, most likely a married couple. Um, Tryphena and Tryphosa, most likely sisters. How do we know that? It was very typical to give sisters com- uh, similar-sounding names. The fact that they're mentioned together, they're probably sisters. Rufus's mother is described as one actively serving with her son and as a mother to Paul 
um, as well. By the way, Rufus here is probably a reference to the son of Simon of Cyrene. Um, So Simon of Cyrene is the Gentile who carried the cross for Jesus, literally, when Jesus fell and was unable to, because he was he was fully man, unable to carry the beam of the cross, they forced into uh, service Simon of Cyrene. And this is what it says in Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Uh, most people believe the reason why Mark would point out the names of his sons is because they became active leaders in the church in those earliest days. And the way he's described here in Romans as chosen in the Lord is likely a reference to what happened to his father. But he's actively serving along with his mother. Nereus is described as, a, as serving with his sister, brother and sister together. I love to see that. Families coming together, doing ministry together, serving the Lord with one another. Now, you can't always have your family with you. You can't always have your spouse or your kids or your parents going to church with you and serving together. I really have the highest respect for those who are the only person in their family who have come to know Jesus and are following him. That just amazes me because I come from a Christian home. But I know many folks whose their own parents sit there and say, why are you going to church? Why do you bother reading the Bible? Why are you wasting your time with this type of stuff? And yet they continue to come and serve and do ministry. I just have the highest respect for someone who just is, has that sort of bravery and courage to follow the Lord, even without the support of their family. And certainly husbands who do that or wives who do that, without the support of their spouse, there's a certain, saying, a certain sort of confidence of saying, I'll follow Jesus no matter what, and I hope and pray that my family comes along with me. Friends, notice how they're on mission. You, you know, most churches, we, we want to we enjoy Christian fellowship. Um, we want to be united together, right? Um, how do you get united together? Uh, you know how you don't get united? You know, it doesn't work in terms of get, being united. Just sort of looking at each other and bucking up and saying, let's be united. <laughs> it doesn't happen. You can't, make it, you can't make it happen. The truth of the matter is we can't make ourselves united, period. God unites us through the gospel. We are family. Right? If God is our father, the good, good father, and we are the ones who are loved by him, and if he's my father and he's your father, you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. We are family, and by the spirit of God, God has made us united. But he calls us to now live out of that unity, to act in line with that unity. You might say to your own kids, stop treating your sister like that, that's your sister. Or stop treating your brother like that, that's your brother. Now, what are you saying in that? I mean, they're brother and sister no matter what, and brothers and sisters fight. But you're saying, start acting more like family, right? Start treating each other as family. That's what the scriptures call us to. We are united, now live out of that. And part of the way we do that, friends, is working for the Lord together. (laughs) You're working for the Lord in the way that God has called you to serve him as a husband or as a wife, as a parent, as a grandparent, Um, Whatever your job may be, as a nurse, as a mechanic, as a lawyer, whatever your job is, serving the Lord faithfully in that area. And then you're serving in the local church in the area that God has called you to serve. And we all serve the Lord together, and this sort of unity comes along the way, right? You can't just make yourself united, but as as we're each serving the Lord, playing our part in his plan, we become united. The more and more 
We are shaped into the image of Christ. You know, they say when it comes to uh, musical instruments, uh, you can't tune a piano uh, very well, at least, to a guitar and turn to the guitar to a drum or whatever. Uh, you need an objective, perfectly tuned instrument to, in- to sort of tune the instruments to. You need a, a tuning fork or something like that. They used to use tuning forks. Now it's more electronic. Because if you try to tune one instrument to the other instrument and the other instrument's a little off, you just get more and more off, right? We don't become united by trying to be like each other. It's not going to work. We're united by trying to all be like Christ. And the more and more we grow into the image of Jesus, the more we find ourselves united like him. Not like him in terms of the diversity of personalities and gifting, but in terms of humility and kindness and love and graciousness and faithfulness to serve the Father. Friends, we're called to be on mission. And one more point as we look at this sort of ending of this, we see a certain affection, love. It's not just they happen to be both working. Paul seems to really care about these people. As he said, he's been eager to get to Rome to be refreshed with them, to spend time with them, to enjoy their company. They are family. They're brothers and sisters. And even he says says to Rufus here, your mother has been like a mother to me. And he ends this entire section, uh, just the first 16 verses of this, of 16, greet one another with a a holy kiss. (laughs) Now, don't start kissing each other just yet. Hold on. Let's look at this for a second. (laughs) A holy kiss was a common form of greeting, but a particularly intimate one, not a romantic one. All right. Uh, men kissed men and women kissed women on the cheek. It was cheek to cheek. Um, but it was more than just your typical greeting of the day. It would be maybe the greeting you would give your brother or your sister in real life and in, in, in the flesh. So what Paul is calling him to is a greeting that's a little more close, a little more intimate, a little more affectionate than the world. Maybe not just a handshake, maybe a hug. Now I know... Post-COVID, some people are hesitant with their hugs, and I get that. So make sure you're respectful of that. But there should be a warm greeting to one another because there's a genuine affection. Christian fellowship really actually cares about one another. And as he says in verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you, calling them all together. Just a few words on Christian unity as we get ready to bring this section to a close. First, to to recognize... (laughs) that in a church family, there will be conflict and there will be hurt feelings and there will need to be forgiveness, okay? So if in your mind you're thinking, um, you know, I'm trying to find the perfect church, I'm searching for a church in which there will never be any problems and I will never hear anything that I don't want to hear, that's, you'll never find it. Jesus led 12 men and they were constantly fighting each other and that's Jesus okay so we're not going to be perfect there will be times in which we we need to just forgive love one another and seek to continue to grow and and mature Uh, let people be who they are Uh, again look at the diversity of this list let people be who they are people are different in personalities different in gifting we're working we're serving together Uh, I'd also say love the church that you're part of not the church you want it to be. Sometimes, you know, I hear people, and this is a great, I love the vision here, they'll say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this church to be filled with a thousand people. And that may happen, or it may not. But if it doesn't, does it matter ultimately for the kingdom? God knows what he's doing. I love this church as it is. 
And let's see what God does going into the future. And friends, I would just encourage you to commit. It doesn't have to be at First Baptist, um, just speaking to Christians in general, uh, but find the church for you and commit. Don't sit on the fence as a sort of visitor for years. Find your church, commit through thick and thin, good times and bad times. Let it be your spiritual family. You don't leave your family very likely, very easily, right? They're your family. Now, there's a time to leave a church. I'm, I'm not saying you never do. People move away, and there are differences, but these are the people you have now covenanted with in relationship with God. These are the people you're going to walk the Christian life with together. So we see here a picture of Christian fellowship. A lot more to this list than appears at first glance, right? One thing I love about it is the Christian faith is not just a set of doctrines. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just these religious dogma, right, that we hold to be, to be true. Right from its very beginning, and as modeled from the scripture, it's a community. It's people in relationship to one another as we follow the Lord. And friends, that is what eternity looks like. There will be no more local churches in glory, right? But we will be one, united in fellowship to each other. Yes, we'll have clear, right, true doctrine. And all of our differences of opinion on doctrine in this world will be, I think, clarified in glory. But it isn't just about having the right knowledge. It's about being in relationship and Christian fellowship with one another. Christian fellowship is an essential of the Christian life. Would you pray with me? Well, our gracious Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that even in these final names and towards the end of this letter, we see a glorious Christian truth. We see the diversity of the early church. People from all different walks of life, men and women, people from all different ethnicities, united together by the gospel as those who are beloved, those who are chosen in the Lord, those who are approved in Christ, and then in response, working for the Lord. So Father, help us. Help us as a church to, to see clearly our standing before you as those loved by God, chosen in Christ, and approved in Christ. And then, by the grace of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, work for the Lord. Find what you are calling us to do. Be willing to share our faith with our neighbors and friends and co-workers and extended family. Uh, be willing to, to use our jobs as a way of helping people, loving people, and even as you give opportunities, sharing our faith with people. And help us, Lord, to demonstrate true affection towards one another as we will be in Christian fellowship forever. Lord, we surrender all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.